Okay, well, we are back in 2 Corinthians. A wonderful time in the book of James last week. I'm sure all of you enjoyed that. I did. A tremendous blessing to hear the Word of God out of James. What a treat. And... um, but I am excited to be back in 2 Corinthians here with you. Why don't we read our text and then we will, we will pray. Why don't we stand together for the reading of God's Word. This is, uh, we're back in, uh, we're starting actually chapter 6. So we're going to be going, uh, uh, beginning in verse 1. Uh, let's, uh, for context's sake, uh, let's read down to verse 10, okay? We're not going to travel that far, but let's read that. It says, And working together with him... We also urge you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, at the acceptable time, I listened to you. And on the day of salvation, I helped you. Behold, now is the acceptable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation, giving no cause for offense in anything, so that the ministry will not be discredited But in everything, commending ourselves as servants of God, in much endurance, in afflictions, in hardships, in distresses, in beatings, imprisonments, in tumults, in labors, in sleeplessness, in hunger, in purity, in knowledge, in patience, in kindness, in the Holy Spirit, in genuine love, in the word of truth, in the power of God, by the weapons of righteousness, for the right hand and the left, by the glory, by, by glory and dishonor, by evil report and good report, regarded as deceivers and yet true, as unknown yet well known, as dying and yet behold we live, as punished yet not put to death, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing yet possessing all things. What an incredible litany of afflictions and sufferings and, and um, all sorts of challenges to, to Paul's apostolic ministry. Uh, let's pray together, and then we'll get into the portion of Scripture we're going to cover today. Let's pray. Well, Father, again, we, we come before you as a church. We, we love you, Lord. We love your word. And God, I pray that you would cause us to increase in our affections for you and for one another. For in those two things... Love to God and love to one another. The whole sum of the law is there. And God, help us to really see what it is that your word is teaching here today, Lord. Teach us something of the importance and of the privilege of being used by you, being a fellow worker together with you in your field. We pray a blessing over our time. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You may be seated. Um, Well, I've entitled this passage of Scripture, this text, which I'm going to look at today, which is verses 1 through 3, partnering with God in the gospel. And I take that from verse 1, where Paul says, working together with Him, working together with Him. Now, we've already seen, in essence, how Paul is partnering with God in the ministry of reconciliation. And when he talks about that in chapter 5 there towards the end, verses 18 to 21, he's talking about reconciliation in general and how the world has the gospel being offered to them so that their sin would not be counted against them so that they could be made right with God through the righteousness that's in Christ, the foreign righteousness, the alien righteousness that comes by faith. And uh, Paul certainly saw himself as a 
fellow worker with God in that context. But what's interesting about this context is that he sort of shifts his focus to the church by urging them. He says, we urge you also. And so he's focusing in on the Corinthian congregation. But what's amazing to me is just this idea of the church and its priorities being around the gospel, to be, to be gospel-focused, we could say, to have the gospel preached to them. I think that's an amazing thing. Romans chapter 1, verse 16 and following, Paul is ready to preach the gospel to the church in Rome. I think that's amazing. He's ready to preach the gospel to the church in Rome. And uh, so the church is always to be, to be focused in on the gospel because this is the reality of how the church relates to the gospel, that the church can never get away from the gospel. The people of God can never lose sight from the gospel. We can never take our eyes off the gospel. We always have to guard the gospel, protect the gospel. You remember that was Paul's admonition to young Timothy. Young Timothy, guard the deposit that was entrusted to you. That's the gospel. That's that body of apostolic truth that comprises the gospel. He says, guard it, keep it, because if you don't, the implication is is you could lose it. It could slip from your hands. You could go from a position of gospel faithfulness to gospel infidelity. So you need to be founded in the gospel, but you need to stay on the gospel. And it shouldn't surprise us, because Paul in many places and in many ways faced this opposition that the church, after being founded on the gospel, had the temptation to slip away from the gospel. Let me just give you a couple of uh, examples. Galatians, you know these well. Galatians chapter 1, verse 6 through 7. Paul was just bewildered at these uh, Galatians, right? He says, I am amazed, the word there is astonished, that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ to another gospel. Then he qualifies, even though there is no other gospel. So for you to leave the gospel for something that you might want to try to call the gospel, no gospel at all, and you're entitled to it. But Paul is, Paul is amazed that they are so quickly apostatizing away from the gospel truth. An amazing warning for all of us. Also, Galatians chapter 3, beginning in verse 1, Again, the Apostle Paul focuses in on this very issue. He says, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Isn't that amazing? That through his preaching, Paul painted a picture of the public crucifixion of Christ. It is exactly what he says in 1 Corinthians 2.2, that he went there to preach nothing but Christ and him crucified. That's what he did for these Galatians. But they were tempted to now go back. And so Paul, as he goes on to say in Galatians chapter 4, verse 19, he is laboring. He's in labor pain. And uh, certainly some of you ladies could come up here and tell us a little bit about what labor pain is like. Right? It's anguish. You're calling for drugs. You're calling for help. You're calling, you know, you turn into a different person at that point. Uh it's anguish, it's toil, it's labor. And isn't it amazing that Paul says right here in this verse, chapter 6, verse 1, he says, do not receive the grace of God in vain. 
Because what that would mean is that he's labored in vain over them, and he certainly doesn't want that to happen. But now, notice first how this starts. In bringing the gospel to the church, Paul saw himself as a fellow worker of God. If you have an NIV, for example, that's the way they translate it. God's fellow workers. The only the only issue there, of course, is that the word God is not in the original. Matter of fact, the word Him is not in the original. The word is, a, is this participle that just literally means working together with, and then sort of the object is left ambiguous. But contextually, it is there. It is, he, he's partnering with the activity of God's reconciliation and God's ministry that, that He's given to Paul, the ministry of reconciliation. And he's really kind of already alluded to this. Verse 20 of chapter 5, he says, as though God were making an appeal through us. See that? There's the partnership. How does Paul partner with God? How does he work together with God? He does it by being God's vessel, God's contour, God's instrument through which the gospel comes to his people and to the world at large. So, that is a bridge, if you would, in the context. Also, notice the same idea is found in, chapter, in verse 1 here as he says that he was urging them. We also urge you. It's the same word that he uses when, uh, earlier in verse 20 when he says that he appeals to them. Parakaleo. It's the same word. as exhortation. He's exhorting the church not to fail to receive the grace of God. Of God. And so I think it's magnificent because it means that the gospel is not just for evangelism. It's not just to be understood evangelistically, but it's to be understood also ecclesiastically, we could say. In the church, we are to be focused on the gospel. That's what Paul wants to see. Paul is always concerned with the purity of the church. Again, if you turn with me to Ephesians chapter 4, Ephesians chapter 4, this is one of the classic places in all the Bible where you see Paul's passion. This is his, his design for the church. This is his master plan. This is, this is what he wants to see. If you want to know if you go to a church and you pastor a church, and what are you going to do there? This is what you want to do there. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11 through 14. Well, we start out with verse 11 where he says that God gave some apostles, he gave some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers. For what purpose? For equipping the saints for the work of service. I should stop there for a second. Any good church is always going to be raising people up, training people up, pouring into other people, making other people efficient fellow workers with God themselves. That's what the church is all about, duplication. If a pastor fails to duplicate himself, he largely has failed in his pastoral task. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2, Paul tells Timothy, Timothy, the things that you've heard of me around many witnesses, commit these to other men who will in turn commit that to other men. That's the progression. Why do people plant churches? So that other churches can be planted after that. That's the whole purpose, duplication, multiplication of disciples. It's a disciple-making process. That's what the church is all about, is discipleship. Someone discipling you and you discipling somebody else. That's God's, God's simple design for how to grow a church and how to, and I don't mean that numerically. I mean that in terms of quality, in terms of quality. So he says, 
This is for the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ until we attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man. This is now, this is Paul now crystallizing what it is that he's getting at. To a mature man, you can't get any further than that, a mature, a ripe man to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. Now, to some of us, we sit there and scratch our head and think, well, what is that? I mean, really, practically, what is that? The measure of the stature that belongs to the fullness of what is that? And the, the, the easiest way I think I could sum it up is that this is Paul's desire to get the church to become Christ-like. Very simple. That all of the moral perfections of Christ would begin to take shape in the church. That we would know something of a Christ-like character in our own lives. That the church would mature in its ability to love, in its ability to, sh- to be compassionate like Christ, in its ability to, to, to be loving like Christ and lay down your life like Christ. is the theology you find all over 1 John. But let's move on because as God's fellow worker, Paul has two main concerns here in this text. Number one, that his message be properly received. And number two, that his ministry be faithfully guarded. That's um, the way I split it up. So the first one is this, Paul's concern for the message. You can see this in the phrase where he says, we also urge you not to receive the grace of God in vain. And I take the grace of God there to refer to the gospel, to Paul's ministry among them when he preached the grace of God to them, when he gave them the precious gospel as a deposit in the church. A church can fail to grasp the gospel, to to reach its, its ultimate end, its ultimate end. But this is amazing because, you know, apostasy, we should start there, is a real threat. So obviously, failing to to receive the grace of God begins evangelically, meaning it begins with a person's salvation. And so that's the very first thing any church needs to be urged to do, is don't fail to be saved. You know, Spurgeon has a small book entitled The Minister's Self-Watch. It's a a work on the minister's self-introspection examining his own heart. And do you know what Spurgeon begins his, that, set, that whole little uh, a sermon, that whole, that whole study that he did? He, he, he begins the study by insisting that a pastor know that he is saved. That might shock us and go, well, I mean, if the pastor's not saved, I mean, but let me, let me assure you of this, that there are many so-called pastors today in thousands of pulpits around the world who do not have the slightest idea of what it means to be born again. This was uh, also rampant in the, in the um, early apostolic church, or, or the, what we can call the Antinician times, when the Roman Empire came in and started transforming the Roman Empire. People started, because of the feudal system and everything that was going on with the politics at that time under Augustine, what ended up happening is instead of, instead of just completely demolishing all of the pagan Uh, temples around Rome, they began to transform them, Christianize them legally, politically. They began to sanction basilicas that were Christianized, and they hired unregenerate clergy just to fill the spot. 
And that's exactly what's happening today all over the world. Men that are filling a spot. It's like a career. They go into a church, and, 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 they, and it's just an occupation. Uh, when I used to work uh, during construction, uh, I had an employer, my boss, who was oh, just a, a pirate. I mean, just a dirty mouth. Just, I mean, wow. I mean, he really took some trophies home for the way he acted and talked. And uh, with the straightest face possible, I remember one time we were having lunch together, he, to- he tells me that um, he, he, as he went out to sort of find a career for himself, he, he had two choices to make. Either he was going to become a clergy or he was going to go into business. <laughs> it was an a occupational decision. It was either get paid sixty, fifty, you know, seventy, hundred thousand dollars doing clergy work, or go into some managerial position somewhere. As if those things are the same. But my friends, if a pastor is not called, effectually called by God through regeneration and salvation, he is not called to be in the pulpit. And sadly, many people they they diminish the potency of that because of the because of the simplicity of it. But it's so true. As Spurgeon says, we must be saved men ourselves. Keep a close watch, Paul says to Timothy, on your life and on your doctrine. For in doing so, you will save both yourself and those who hear you. Paul is saying to the, to the Corinthians, do not receive the grace of God in vain. And so moving past the pastor now to the congregation, how do they receive the grace of God in vain? I'll tell you what that looks like real easily. You go, to, you, go to, you go to church your whole life, you're raised in the church, you go to youth group your whole life, and then you, you, get out of, you get out of high school, you're 18, 19, 20 years old, and you're off to college, and then you become, just like this young man approached me once and told me, I no longer believe in God. Because I went to college and my professors told me, you know, that, you know, about evolution and they started undermining the authority of the Word of God. And the minute you undermine the authority of the Word of God, it's over. The minute you don't believe that this is the Word of God, I don't know why you would believe anything about Christianity in the first place. If there is no infinite and ultimate authority, then why believe anything in this book? You know, this book calls you to the highest possible standard of holiness, and what, what would motivate you to live that way if it's not God's authority? Man's authority will only go so far. But if it's God's authority, God's word, in exhorting you and calling you to a certain standard of holiness, then you will be willing to do what Paul exhorts the Corinthians to do, perfect holiness in the fear of God. And so Paul is... He is, he's afraid that maybe among them there, there are those who have heard the word. They've come to church. They've heard the messages. They've heard the sermons. They've heard Paul's letters being read, but they have received the grace of God in vain. And many, many times this happens, and it never happens without a means. There's always a means to apostasy. There's a means to every end, and apostasy is no different. I mean, Before Judas betrayed Jesus, he already was a thief and stealing from the money box. That's in the Word of God, John 12. Demas, he allowed himself to fall in love with the world and fall in love with the things of the world before he abandoned Paul on the mission field because he loved the world so much he had to go right back into it. You see, there's always a means to an end 
Possibly the most powerful of these examples is in the book of Hebrews. The whole book of Hebrews is one giant exhortation not to receive the grace of God in vain and to be careful not to drift away in unbelief. But those who drifted away, those who fell away first had to open themselves up to the Judaizers' teaching, to their teaching and their insisting on Jewish customs and Jewish institutions as a way to become righteous with God. You see, every end has a means. People don't just wake up after, pure, after, after living a, a life of faithfulness and a life of gospel ministry and being involved in the things of God and just wake up one day and say, I don't want to walk with God anymore. There is a means to that end. There's a means to that end. So that's more of an individual level, looking at the individual and what we must do. But Paul also exhorts the whole church. He will do the same thing in 2 Corinthians 11. As a matter of fact, he, he actually goes on to talk about how dangerous it is and how the audacity of the church opening itself up to, to harmful influences, mainly in false teaching, mind you, mainly in false teaching. 2 Corinthians 11.3. 2 Corinthians 11.3. He was exhorting the church to do that which he himself did. Because Paul... According to Galatians chapter 2, verse 5, he would not yield to false teachers even for a moment. Even for an hour, he says. 1 Corinthians eleven three. 3, he says, I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds will be led astray from the simplicity and, the pure, and purity of devotion to Christ. For if one comes and preaches another Jesus, whom we have not preached, or you receive a different spirit which you have not received, or a different gospel which you have not accepted, you bear this beautifully. And that is added at the end there to sort of, sort of point out the, how, uh, the audacity of opening yourself up the, 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 just with almost with a satirical edge, almost mocking them and saying, look, don't be so foolish and opening yourself to these evil influences. And this can happen on a church level. This can happen on a denominational level. Entire denominations have lost their soul. They have lost their grip on the gospel. Maybe a good, because I don't want to go too far in rat, or I'll never stop you know, harping on this, but uh, maybe a good source, resource for you to read is Wayne Grudem's book. He wrote a book called Evangelical Feminism, A New Path to Liberalism, question mark. I think he should have put period <laughs> instead of a question mark. But it's fascinating what Grudem does in that book. What he does is he documents how many denominations began with a pure gospel, an orthodox gospel, holding to all the essential tenets of the Christian faith. And through subtle compromises like egalitarianism, that's what the whole focus of that book is about, putting women in leadership, women pastors, is, is uh, really what he's getting at. And that many denominations and many churches eventually went not only from women pastors, but eventually to gay pastors. He, and he shows the progression, and he knows what he's talking about. And I praise God that he's written that book for us as a warning to take heed that these little compromises don't, ever le don't lead anywhere good, ever. And so I want you to see 
Not just the appeal that he makes to them when he urges them, but the nature of this appeal. Because the nature of this, this appeal is rooted in Old Testament theology. Matter of fact, he quotes directly from Isaiah 49.8. And, and he's quoting uh, the Septuagint verbatim. I looked it up. It's exactly the same as the Greek New Testament. Where he says, at the acceptable time, I listen to you. He says, and on the day of salvation, I helped you. Because of the seriousness of what he is trying to say, Paul will go on to add this sort of this little catchphrase, behold now. And he says it twice, right? He says, behold now is the acceptable time. Behold now is the day of salvation. And so he's pulling from an Old Testament context wherein the prophet Isaiah was crying out to Israel to say, look, now is the time. This is a favorable time. You are hearing the truth through the ministry of Isaiah. You're hearing the call to repent. But if you won't repent, then you will perish. And Paul is saying essentially the same thing. He is kind of like an Isaiah figure, if you would, to the church of Corinthians, crying out to them not to fail where Israel failed, but to lay hold of the promises of God, to lay hold of this, this salvation that has dawned. It's so amazing. The only other place you find this sort of language, this word here, the acceptable time, for example, is in Luke chapter, in the New Testament, Luke chapter 4, verse 19. Again, announcing the arrival of the Messiah. That was a sign that the end of the age has come, that this eschatological promise of God that he's made all the way from the Old Testament has arrived in Christ. It's time. Salvation has come. The end of the age is here. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 26 said, the consummation of all the ages is upon us. What does that all mean? The end of the world is tomorrow? Well, maybe. But what it means is that this is the final period of time that God is going to work redemptively. We are no longer waiting on any prophets. We're no longer awaiting another arrival of Jesus before his second coming. We're not awaiting anything else. We have the final installment of God's redemptive work on planet Earth. He has given us the Messiah. He sent His Spirit. He rose up a Spirit-filled people in the New Testament church to go out and globally proclaim this message of reconciliation. And there's nothing else that we need to wait for. And so our message to other people is, look, salvation is here. Don't fail to grab hold of the promises of God. I like what David Garland said in his commentary, New American, uh, New American Commentary set. He says, the implication would be clear for those in Paul's age who were familiar with that ancient cliche to seize the day. To become acceptable to God, one must accept God's offer of reconciliation. Yet hearing the promise is no guarantee that the promise will be received. They must call, or excuse me, they must obey as long as it is still called today. That is calling us, the church, to go on with faithfulness, to never get tired of the gospel. The gospel for God's elect never gets old. It always will, you will always be captured by the gospel. You'll always be in love with the gospel. And I'm not speaking necessarily emotionally, you have some sort of emotional experience about the gospel, but you will make a commitment to the gospel that will never fade. It will never, you'll never fail 
to believe in the gospel. And that is God's grace too. It's the, you ever wonder how and why you keep believing in the gospel? Every day you get up. Every week you go to work. Every, other, every month, every year rolls on. And why do you keep believing as a Christian? The Bible would say that that's God's work. God is the one that keeps you. God is the one that is going to protect you, that's going to guard you. It's preserving you for your hope in heaven. It's God's sovereign grace. I absolutely believe in eternal security, but at the same time, though I believe in eternal security, you know, without fail, there's no daylight there. I, 100%. Romans chapter 8, verse 29, 30. Listen, if you're predestined, you will be glorified, period. But again, that doesn't mean that you and I are not meant to feel the warnings, that that is the means that God uses to preserve us all our life long, that we take heed, as the book of Hebrews says, we take heed to, to that, earnest, that earnest warning that is given to us not to drift away. Okay, finally, he's not just concerned for, his, for the message. He's not just concerned that they get it, they listen to it, they get it right. There's so much that, you, that we could talk about there. But he's also concerned about his ministry. Notice in verse 3, very interesting, there's no link between 2 and 3. You notice that? There's no this, there's no then, there's no but, there's no because, there's no and, there's no conjunction. There's, no, there's nothing grammatically linking these verses together. That makes it so that verse 2 largely functions parenthetically. In other words, verse 3 is sort of picking up where he left off at the beginning of verse 1 when he talks about his ministry, namely working together with God and then picking up, he says, giving no offense in anything or giving no cause for offense in anything. It's just an interesting way that he uh, constructs his sentence here. But Paul's focus, again, is in, his, in, in the integrity of his ministry. Even though it's difficult, this is what he's saying. So the details of this idea of the ministry, and we're going to look a lot closer at this, are really in verses 4 through 10. That's what we read, that whole section there detailing Paul's afflictions and sufferings and the things that he endured in the ministry. But here, uh, this verse is just really stressing the fact that Paul, as far as he could tell, never gave any reason, never uh, became the cause for anybody to be offended at anything that he did. In other words, what's he saying what, what, what is the logical connection to what he just said? Notice, he has just announced by quoting Isaiah, the, the, the day of salvation is here. It's an acceptable time. It's the right time. It has come, right? The day of salvation has dawned. And so now he's wanting to stress that his ministry has never gotten in the way of that that he has never become a stumbling block for the gospel. He has never hindered the message going forth. He has never hindered the ministry of reconciliation. That's what he's saying. He never gave offense in anything. Notice why. So that the ministry will not be discredited. Now, just to kind of emphasize this a little bit further, Paul never wanted to be a stumbling block. We know that. 
about Paul. He didn't want to stumble either in the church or out of the church. In the church, we know Romans chapter 14, he never wanted to become a stumbling block by flaunting his liberty, let's say, right? He never wanted to live in such a way that his manner of life was going to stumble another person being able to walk with God. He was so careful. He was concerned with the, the babe in the room, right? Uh, I, I don't know if I've shared this with you before, some of you, but Spurgeon has this, um, he has this, this neat story, uh, this analogy. He calls it baby is king, right? Baby is king. You know that in your home if you have a baby in there. Nancy, you got that baby back there. We're all real sensitive to Jackson back there and what he's doing. If he starts coughing or crying, we all, you know, we stop focusing on the sermon. We focus on the baby because baby is king. You go to a home, everything revolves around baby. Baby taking a nap, you don't make noise. Okay? Baby wants to eat, well, go, you got to go feed him. Baby is in control. Baby's king. If you would, there are many babies in the kingdom. They can't drink a beer with you. That harms their conscience. They can't smoke a cigar with the reformed guys in the, in, the, in the room, right? They can't watch certain movies that you watch. They can't, they don't love sports the way that you, whatever it may be. They can't eat certain things. You have to be sensitive to their conscience. Paul even says, don't make a, don't make a weak brother, don't strengthen his conscience either. Don't think you need to become the one to help him harden his conscience. You need to educate your, your conscience, brother. It's okay here, just here, take a drink. No, you could be the source of stumbling, that brother. And you never want to be in that position. But also to the world. Paul was also culturally sensitive to the world, never wanting to, commit, to, to be a stumbling block in that way. Murray Harris points out that very thing. He never wanted to stumble anybody in any context. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 32, he says that very thing. Giving no offense either to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I also please all men in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of the many, so that they may be saved. Boy, we have in Paul such a high standard, don't we? We have in Paul such a beautiful, perfect standard of how to evangelize and how to engage the gospel. So that if you go to a certain culture, you, and if it doesn't violate Scripture, you've got to conform to that culture. You know? When I was in Africa, um, several times they had to tell me, don't sit like that. Why? Because when you cross your leg, like guys like to cross their legs, you show the bottom of your foot, that is extremely offensive in that culture. Men have to cross their legs like women do here. You know? Cross your legs, well, you know, sorry, but that's the truth. Uh, certain cultural things like that, you just do. You don't question, you know, I don't care, I'm an American, I'm going to cross my legs however I want. Don't expect to be very effective with the gospel there. If Paul is able to sort of put himself, to make himself to become a Jew, he'll become a Jew. If he, if he can become a Greek, he'll become a Greek. As long as it doesn't contravene the Word of God. As long as it doesn't violate anything like that. Of course, Paul's number one focus is the ministry. And I love that. What an incredible witness and what an incredible lesson that is for me. Is that in everything I have to have the ministry in mind. 
He says, so that I will not discredit the ministry, or so that the ministry will not be discredited. That word is interesting, and especially the way he made it, the way he formed that word, to be discredited. It literally means that someone outside will examine you and will find fault with you. That's really interesting. There's a fault. There's a legitimate fault in the ministry. And Paul was always careful that nothing in the ministry that he did, any, there was never a reproach, that nothing, their reproach would never stick to him. He always wanted to minister in such a way that his ministry was commendable before God and man. Or as Paul says, in the sight of God and in the consciousness of men. Let me read to you a few verses in closing. 2 Corinthians 1.12, we've looked at this. He says, our proud confidence is this, the testimony of our conscience, that in holiness, godly sincerity, not in fleshly wisdom, but in the grace of God, we have conducted ourselves in the world, and especially toward you. His conduct was exhaustive. It wasn't he was one person in the church and another person at work. Another, he was one person in the church and he was another person in the home. No, he always was sensitive in all spheres of life to be the same person. To be the same person. 2 Corinthians 4.2, but we have renounced the things hidden because of shame, not walking in craftiness or adulterating the word of God, but by the manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. 2 Corinthians 5.11, therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men, but we are, what we, but, but we are made manifest to God. And I hope that we are made manifest also in your conscience, in the deepest part, in the deepest subject, uh, you know, uh, inner, you know, uh, metaphysical part of man. Paul wanted them to know about his integrity. It's just amazing language here. First Timothy chapter one verse five, he says, "The goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience." and a sincere faith. That is the goal that you have to have if you want a ministry that cannot be discredited. And by the grace of God, I strive to be that, and I, I, I pray that our church, that we would strive to be that way. By the gra- only by the grace of God will we do this. Well, Father, um, we do pray for your grace today. We do ask that by your grace, Lord, you would strengthen us. And by your grace, Lord, that you would conform us more and more into the image of your Son. And more and more, Lord, that we would examine ourselves to see, Lord, is there anything in my life that would make me a stumbling block to someone? Lord, is there anything in my life that would cause me to have failed in my duties as a Christian? Is there anything in my life, Lord, that is causing the effectiveness of the gospel to be hindered? Lord forbid that it would be. And Lord, where it is, we know that there's no condemnation for us who who are in Christ. But God, help us to do what we must, to repent if we must, to change where we must in order to be pleasing in your sight. Oh God, we know that this life will soon be passed. Only what was done for Christ only that is, is going to last in the end. And so, Father, help us to live 
in light of eternity, like Paul, help us to put our minds on the things that are unseen, the things that are eternal in the heavens. We bless your name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.